This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my hallowed honor to be in dialogue with Dr. Donald Burns. He is the founder of the Burns Institute for Poverty Research at the Colorado Center on Law and Policy in Denver, Colorado. We will be discussing his newly published book, which he has co-authored with Jamie Reif, Journeys Out of Homelessness, The Voices of Lived Experience, published in Boulder, Colorado by Lynn Reiner Publishers, 2020. Donald, it's an honor to be in communication with you today. I'm humbled to be in your presence. Well, um, I am honored to be uh, part of this uh, podcast, so thank you very much for uh, inviting me. I'm just sorry that my colleague, Jamie Reif, uh, is under the weather and not able to participate. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired your scholarly journey? Uh, well, actually, I never grew up. Uh, I'm uh, still uh, in the formative stages. Um, uh, seriously, I, I uh, was born and raised in, uh, I was born in Massachusetts and raised in, in Connecticut. Um, went to school. Uh, <clears throat> well, uh, I went to a private school and then to a um, prep school in uh, New Hampshire. And then I went to college uh, in uh, New Jersey. So I spent most of my early years um, on the East Coast. Um, and then uh, after college, I uh, did a couple of years as an um, Episcopal um, volunteer for mission in St. Louis and working in a um, very uh, lower class black neighborhood. Uh, and I, it was an absolutely fascinating, wonderful, transformative uh, kind of experience. Um, I went on and got uh, a master's and a doctorate in education and worked in the field of educational research and evaluation for uh, about 20 years. Um, including uh, being the um, special assistant to the president of a black college in Birmingham, Alabama during the 1960s, uh, which I found uh, to be a fascinating experience. Um, and then in the uh, early 80s, uh, I decided to shift gears and start uh, working as a direct service provider uh, for people experiencing homelessness in Washington, D.C. Um, and I was there at the uh, agency that I headed for about three years. 
uh, and then for various reasons left there. And my late wife and I wrote a book on homelessness, um, which I strongly recommend that you not read because it is uh, very out of date and no longer reflects my thinking about the issue. Um, and <clears throat> then uh, spent some time in Southern California and then moved uh, to Denver in 2003. So uh, exactly 20 years ago. And have been very much uh, engaged in the issue of homelessness uh, ever since then. Uh, have been on the faculty at the University of Denver uh, and then over uh, the last three or four years been involved with the Colorado Center on Law and Policy. Um, so that is a, a thumbnail sketch. Um, I've uh, written, co-authored three books on uh, the issue of homelessness and I'm now a co-author of another book uh, that's about to come out, which I'd like to actually talk to you about, Ari, uh, when we finish this podcast. Thank you. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? Um, right after uh, my second book came out, um, I was at the University of Denver and a colleague of mine suggested that I go and talk to uh, a woman um, that I never met uh, before. And she was the um, head of a, a program at the uh, business school at the University of Denver. Um, and I went to her office and uh, not having any idea what to expect, wondering why I was doing this. And I got to her office and I spent an hour and a half listening to her tell the story of her homelessness experience. Uh, I hadn't realized that she had been uh, experiencing homelessness. Uh, and I was quite blown away by this uh, narrative that she shared with me. Uh, and I, at the end of our conversation, I said, uh, you really should write this down because it's a fascinating, important um, experience. And then I stopped and said, you know, maybe you and I could work together on a book and your experience could be part of it. Well, sure enough, her experience is the first of the nine stories uh, her name is Bar Barbara Jackson, uh, and uh, it's the second chapter in our book. Uh, and as soon as we started, um, I knew that it was going to be an important book. And uh, I <clears throat> started talking to several of my friends and colleagues who had experienced homelessness and asked them whether they would participate. And they all said yes. Uh, and then I got Jamie, uh, whom I had gotten to know, uh, to be my co-author. Um, and um, then, sure enough, uh, the book actually took shape. And uh, uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, get a publisher. Uh, and uh, the book finally came out um, in 2019, 2020. But it was based on that one conversation 
that I really had no expectations about. Um, and her story just grabbed me. Um, and so that was the beginning uh, of this book. What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell? Um, well, there's several stories. First of all, um, the usual understanding of the causes of homelessness. And I don't know about Canada so much, but I know in the United States, people tend to think of homelessness as being caused by substance abuse, mental illness, um, laziness, uh, bad choices. And I mean, that's sort of the conventional wisdom. Uh, and each of these, or most of these stories present um, individuals and their experience that were really quite different from that. Uh, so that um, in uh, the case of uh, Barb, um, I mean, she experienced homelessness as a uh, young person, six to 12 years old. Uh, John, um, who was actually Tim in the book, um, he was uh, in high school. Uh, the others, uh, a, a couple of the others experienced homelessness as uh, young people. And in every case, their situation and their uh, falling into homelessness was not based on the kinds of stereotypes uh, that were so common, still are so common in this country. Um, and so one of the basic purposes of the book is to say, hey, look, people, um, what you think you know about this issue is wrong. And you really need to understand more uh, about the different reasons that people become uh, unhoused. Um, a second thing that we really tried to do was to focus on um, the importance of connections that people were able to make with other people who could provide support. Um, one of the things that is true, uh, I think universally, is that uh, a major problem around homelessness is lack of housing. Uh, and of course it is. Um, but in addition to the lack of four walls and a roof, oftentimes a major problem is lack of uh, networks of support that can provide support in times of problems. Um, and this is an almost universal characteristic uh, of those people experiencing homelessness. And so this uh, lack of what I call uh, networks of support or social capital uh, is something that is uh, not often talked about in terms of uh, the causes of and the uh, consequences of homelessness. 
Uh, and that's something we really wanted to highlight in our book. Uh, so that almost all of the people that uh, whose stories uh, are included uh, managed to escape from uh, homelessness through connections to people who can provide support. What is the difference between a house and a home? Well, um, that's a very interesting question. And, and thank you for, for raising it, Ari. Um, a house... And this is what I was sort of saying uh, a minute ago. Uh, I consider a house um, four walls and a roof. Uh, and in our new book that I mentioned, um, one person who experienced homelessness said, I didn't realize I was homeless when uh, I was in uh, a housing unit I only realized I was homeless when I was totally without uh, my friends and family. So the social connection and uh, what uh, we have come to call uh, relational poverty uh, or the absence of networks of support, um, community, if you will, um, this is what makes a home. It's not just the four walls and a roof. Uh, it's the people around the individual, uh, the networks of support, um, <clears throat> the social capital. And I, I must say, and Jamie would be the first person to uh, say this, one of the most important ways for people to people who are in housing to connect to people who are without housing is through one-on-one -on -one experiences uh, in which uh, there's a real exchange of empathy, uh, exchange of humanity, if you will. Uh, and frankly, one of the things that we haven't, as a society, haven't been able to do is figure out good and effective ways of creating those kinds of opportunities for uh, mutual exchange uh, and uh, warmth. What misconceptions about homelessness does your book challenge? Why do these misconceptions exist and persist? Um, there are lots of misperceptions. <clears throat> uh, and I often say <clears throat> uh, to people, the conventional wisdom is that people experiencing homelessness are lazy, they're crazy, they're drunks, they're druggies, uh, or they've made bad decisions. However, if you stop and think about it, there are many more people in housing who are lazy, crazy, drunks, druggies, and who among us has never made a bad decision? So what's the difference? Well, the difference, frankly, is access to resources, housing, health care, uh, money, uh, <clears throat> social capital, networks of support. 
all of those are important resources that people who are ex experiencing homelessness don't have access to that you and I and most of us in housing do have access to. Um, so one of the misperceptions is that all of these issues uh, are um, <clears throat> what really cause homelessness and create the problem. Um, most of the folks who are experiencing homelessness uh, are not, <clears throat> well, uh, for some 45 to 50% of the adults are actually working, uh, getting gainful uh, wages and employment, but they're not making enough money to pay for rent. Um, the incidence across, and this is given the uh, total population of people experiencing homelessness. The total incidence of uh, mental illness is 25 to 30 percent. The total incidence of uh, substance abuse uh, and addiction is about the same. So it's not that everybody is experiencing those kinds of problems. Um, one of the things that uh, is really striking is there are now more people experiencing homelessness than there were 40 years ago. Uh, so, uh, I'm, and now I'm talking about the U.S. primarily. Um, you'd think after 40 years, the problems would have lessened. Uh, but the fact of the matter is we have more people now than we did 40 years ago. So clearly we haven't figured out the most effective ways of dealing with the issue. Uh, people ask me, um, can we end homelessness? My response is we will always have a few people who for one reason or another are suddenly, suddenly find themselves without housing. That will always be the case. However, what we can do is make sure that those instances are brief, one time only, and very rare. Uh, and that I think we can do. One of the most striking things about uh, our approach in the United States to homelessness is what happened uh, shortly after the Great Recession um, <clears throat> of 2008 to 2010. President Obama and the Secretary of uh, <clears throat> Uh, Veterans Affairs, Sean Donovan, got together and they created a major influx of dollars uh, at the federal level to address veteran homelessness over the course of three or four years. And during that period, we reduced veteran homelessness by over 50% which strikes me as meaning if we have the political will and the resources are put into the job, we can substantially reduce homelessness. Now, 
One of the problems is, you know, veterans are always a, a very popular target uh, for uh, ending homelessness because after all, they've given uh, of themselves uh, to protect our country. So, I mean, that's a quote, popular uh, <clears throat> target for ending homelessness. Um, what about families, single parents and kids? Uh, nobody likes to see kids experiencing homelessness. I mean, it's just tragic. Um, can't we generate the same kind of political will uh, to invest in the resources necessary to really address homelessness uh, for those families? Uh, and so far, we haven't done it. Uh, so it's a lack of political will. It's a lack of resources. Uh, and if we can generate both of those, we could do a great deal more than we've done so far. If one of our listeners, or if one of your readers, encounters a homeless person personally, how should they interact with him or her differently than they otherwise might intuitively be inclined to? I have lots of different responses to that. And uh, uh, please uh, shut me up when um, I'm just running my mouth. Um, there was a wonderful experience, uh, uh, experiment in New York City in 2014. And a group gathered together five extended families. And in each of the five families, the experimenters pulled aside one person from the family without the knowledge of the other members of the family. And had those five people uh, dress up as though they were experiencing homelessness. And they sat uh, in, in various places along uh, a major thoroughfare uh, in New York City. And they were dressed in rags. They had tin cups. Uh, they were sitting on blankets uh, and looked like a typical uh, homeless individual. And then asked the other members of all the five families to walk up and down um, <clears throat> various streets, including these streets, to see whether uh, these family members would recognize their other family members. And after a full day, they got all the families together. And the other family members were horrified that they didn't recognize their spouse. They didn't recognize their brother. They didn't recognize their uh, cousin. Because by and large, they simply walked by and assumed that, oh, you know, there's, a, there's one of those uh, sort of creepy homeless people. Um, and that is so typical of how um, many of us look at people experiencing homelessness. Uh, I can remember, and I, I will come back to your question, Ari. Sure. 
uh, I can remember at one point I was at a stoplight uh, in my car and there was a young guy standing on the corner with a sign that read, I'm not cute enough to get services. Can you help me? Mm -hmm. And I rolled down my window and said to him, I'm sorry, I don't have anything to give you today. But I think you really are cute enough and you really should be able to get services. And he laughed and he slapped his knee and said, that's the best thing I've heard all day. Thank you ever so much for acknowledging me. Um, can you imagine working at a job in which you stand at a corner for six hours and 97% of the people who pass you by totally ignore you? or intentionally look away? I mean, what does that do for one's concept of self-respect? Uh, it's just awful. And so part of my answer to your question is, and you were saying this before we started recording, I mean, your own experience with people experiencing homelessness, stop and say, hi, how you doing? Um, simply acknowledging that this person is another human being and not somebody less than you. Um, and even if you don't have anything to give them, simply say hello. One of the things that happens in um, the U.S. and it probably happens in Canada too is during uh, the holiday season, there are um, special uh, lunches and dinners for people experiencing homelessness. And folks volunteer to uh, help serve meals. Uh, and lots of people will stand there and spoon it out onto a plate, uh, some portion of whatever the meal consists of. And then the person moves on and the next person comes along. And that's fine. But it maintains the kind of power relationship that is so awful, uh, a giver and a taker. And what's really more important is for the person who is handing out food to go and sit down at a table and talk to others. Engage in a conversation. Uh, you were saying, Ari, before we started, that um, you were amazed at uh, the kinds of uh, equal conversations that people can have. And that's the key. Uh, it's two individuals who are quote, brothers and sisters, fellow human beings. Uh, that really is uh, the kind of thing that uh, your listeners should be prepared to engage in uh, with people experiencing homelessness. How did you conduct your interviews? How did you meet your interviewees? Um, 
Well, there, there are two questions. Uh, how did we meet them? Uh, for the most part, these were people that we had gotten to know prior to uh, our uh, writing the book. The second piece is these weren't interviews. These were narratives written by the people themselves. Uh, so that in every case, the stories that uh, are in the book are, sto are stories that the individuals actually wrote themselves. And um, in most cases, uh, the stories were much longer than they appear in the book. And we had to uh, get back to them and say, uh, unfortunately, we can't write a, uh, or can't produce a 2,000 page book. So we're going to have to ask you to uh, shorten your story. And then we would edit them and share the edited versions back with them uh, and get their approval. But in every case, the stories themselves are from the folks. And what we tried to do was to pull out threads in each of the stories and then do uh, sort of a policy analysis uh, of those threads uh, with some suggestions at the uh, in the last chapter uh, about uh, ways we could address some of the issues. You write as follows on page 185. If we are to be more successful in addressing homelessness, we must focus more energy on networks of support and on building community. Instead of focusing all our efforts on housing and services for each individual person experiencing homelessness, we must pay more attention to developing what the Australian Doorway Program calls natural supports, human relationships and interactions with others, caring individuals natural networks of support and community are essential elements in helping people without homes become more self-sufficient and productive members of our society. As part of this emphasis shift, we must ensure more attention on how to expand the choices available to those we are serving and to ensure their active participation in determining which option to choose. Someone once asked, will we ever truly end homelessness? Our answer is that there will always be some individuals and families who end up without their homes for a period. That is unavoidable. However, what we can do is make sure that this is a rare occurrence, that no one is in that position for more than a month or two, and that after that hiatus, they will be able, they will find a home of their own and remain stably housed. That, we think, is ultimately doable if we have the political and collective will to accomplish it. Can you expand on this observation and insight for us? Um, a friend and colleague of mine, uh, James Ginsburg, uh, ran a, a, a recovery program for people experiencing homelessness. And it was based at uh, a facility uh, outside of Denver uh, in which they had something like two uh, 200 to 250 uh, people. And he said what really bothered him the most was walking into somebody's room and having them sitting 
in front of a window, simply staring out the window or having passed away. And one of the things that, uh, particularly during COVID, that was very popular was to utilize uh, motel rooms uh, to house people uh, on a temporary basis. And that was fine. But think about being assaulted away in the hotel room with nobody that you know anywhere near you. And you are asked to just live there totally by your own. Uh, in fact, uh, the, my major colleague for our new book started a program called Miracle Friends in which he got volunteers to become phone buddies for people who are uh, in motels. And the volunteer would call uh, the person there uh, once or twice a week, just check in and have a, a conversation. Um, it is critically important, and I was talking about this a minute ago, uh, natural supports, people that you can rely on. Uh, I tend to frame it in terms of if you had a crisis at two o'clock in the morning, do you have somebody you could call uh, and talk to? Most of us have people. We have family. We have friends. Uh, we have people from our church. We have people from uh, the neighborhood. People experiencing homelessness often don't have that. And that's what I mean by natural supports. The caseworkers are not available at two o'clock in the morning. Uh, it has to be somebody that you know well enough that you can call them. And there are ways of creating those kinds of networks. Uh, and please don't misunderstand the following comment, but um, 12 step programs uh, are organized on the basis of creating networks of support. Now, I'm not suggesting that everybody experiencing homelessness uh, has a uh, significant uh, challenge in terms of, of uh, alcohol, drugs, mental illness, or whatever. What I am saying is that if you think about 12-step programs, the major, uh, there are three major emphases. One is uh, having a sponsor or a mentor, i.e. a person that you can call on anytime. The second thing is regular meetings. And this becomes a community, people of similar kinds of experiences. Uh, the third is an element of accepting responsibility. Uh, and all three of those become very important aspects of beginning to create communities for folks experiencing homelessness. Uh, in the uh, developmental disability community, there is a tradition now of 
what are called circles of support in which the uh, individual with a uh, <clears throat> individual with a challenge is the focus person, and then there are uh, family members, friends, colleagues who become um, a circle of support. And they meet regularly uh, and work to uh, provide assistance uh, to that person. Uh, these kinds of um, intentionally developed communities become really very important. And uh, frankly, I don't think a lot of service agencies spend enough time uh, helping to build communities around individuals experiencing homelessness. Uh, and it seems to me a, uh, a critically important part of uh, what we need to do in terms of uh, addressing uh, the issue. What are the strengths and weaknesses of the representations of homelessness in contemporary media? Um, unfortunately, uh, the media tend to focus on the people that reinforce all the negative stereotypes, people experiencing mental illness, uh, people experiencing substance abuse, uh, people who are uh, not working. Um, and unfortunately, those are the ones that um, people pay attention to. And yet they are a relatively small portion of the total population. Uh, and I tend to think of it in terms of the visible versus the invisible uh, homelessness. Um, the visible homeless are the people we see on the streets, the people in campsites, uh, the people who are panhandling, the people who are lying uh, on the sidewalk or in somebody's uh, front doorway. Uh, they're only 15 to 20 to 25% of the total population. Most of them are invisible. They're living in shelters. They're in some kind of transitional housing. Uh, they're in safe havens. Um, they are doubled up. Um, we don't see them. Uh, so as far as most of us are concerned, we don't know that they exist. But that's the vast majority of people experiencing homelessness. Um, and unfortunately, uh, those people are not the focus of media attention. Media attention tends to focus on the people that are visible. Um, and those folks uh, are only a small portion and they tend to have more uh, challenges uh, than uh, people who are um, in shelters are in, invisible. You write as follows on page 102. There is real irony in the creation of these criminalizing statutes, local decision makers enact such statutes to eliminate the sometimes unsightly accumulation of tents and trash and to push unsheltered individuals into shelters, 
local advocates for those experiencing homelessness respond to these ordinances by initiating demonstrations, lawsuits, and local and state rights to rest initiatives. What both sides of the discussion seem to ignore is the basic fact that both sides really are after the same goal, namely getting people off the streets. Admittedly, each side approaches that goal from a very different perspective. Advocates want a better solution, better situation for those on the streets, including housing and more commodious shelter. They don't want their folks to have to live the way they do on the streets. Business owners, business improvement districts, business partnerships, tourists, and often the public want the people want the street people off the streets, out of their parks, out of sight. In other words, both sides really are after the same goal. Why is it that the two groups can't collaborate for the same goal, setting aside their philosophical differences? Combining the energy and resources of both camps would make the effort that much stronger. Can you elaborate on this insight? Um, there are various aspects of this. First of all, um, and uh, there's an organization in the U.S. called the it's now uh, the National Homelessness Law Center. Uh, they do a regular uh, survey of about uh, 185 cities, uh, and they document the number of um, local ordinances and statutes uh, that, uh, in essence, criminalize homelessness. Uh, and there are huge numbers of these ordinances. Uh, and, average something like nine or 10 a city. Uh, so you're talking uh, almost two, th just these uh, 185 cities, we're talking uh, close to 2,000 uh, ordinances and, and uh, statutes. Um, and it's everything from uh, <clears throat> you can't sleep on public or right of ways you can't sleep in private property. You can't cover yourself uh, with uh, anything more than uh, your shirt uh, <clears throat> because then it's camping. You can't camp. Uh, there are what are known as sit and lie ordinances uh, where you can't sit uh, during the day in certain places. Uh, you can't lie in certain places. Um, there are also um, ordinances about uh, handing out food in uh, public places uh, and so on and so forth. Um, it really does criminalize the act of trying to exist if you don't have a home. And frankly, it's uh, very expensive uh, to enforce these. Uh, there have been studies in my hometown of Denver, uh, and uh, in the city of Denver, uh, you know, it's millions of dollars to uh, enforce uh, because the police go through sweeps of uh, these encampments. And that doesn't do anything to address the housing situation of these folks. What it does is to move them from one city block to another because they don't have anywhere to go. Uh, and so they just moved to another block. Uh, and then uh, a week later, 
there's a sweep of the next block. So it's like a whack-a-mole approach uh, to um, enforcement of these bans. Um, here in Denver, and I, I can speak about uh, the city here because I'm, I'm quite familiar with it, we have just elected a new mayor because the former mayor uh, was term limited out. And for the first time for encampments, we have porta potties, we have washing stations, uh, we have uh, shower trucks available. And literally, it's the first time that these kinds of facilities became available for people who are living on the streets. For 12 years, the prior mayor didn't provide any of this. So we're beginning to see that the new mayor takes seriously the kinds of human needs that people have. Now, uh, he also obviously wants to get people into housing, but if there's not enough housing, at least let's get them uh, sort of basic necessities so that um, they have some place to throw trash, they have some place to uh, go to the john, they have some place uh, to wash. Uh, and you'd think that this would be absolutely obvious, but literally for 12 years, we had nothing like this. Um, also, the research suggests that building housing and getting people into housing is less expensive than keeping people in the streets and uh, in terms of healthcare, in terms of, of uh, <clears throat> the criminal justice system, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and it really is it's cheaper to do the right thing. So uh, why don't we do more of that? Why don't we do the right thing? And again, uh, and it gets back to some of the questions you asked earlier, Ari, it's about uh, the negative stereotypes. Uh, it's about uh, the lack of uh, political will um, and uh, we need to change all that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You write as follows on page 10. Major and well-intended federal policies also unintentionally expanded the number of homeless. The deinstitutionalization of individuals diagnosed with a mental illness from state hospitals started in the Kennedy and Johnson years and left many former patients and inmates of state hospitals without housing and services as the needed supply of community mental health facilities never materialized. The decriminalization of public intoxication left many public inebriates without shelter as former 
quote unquote drunk tanks were never replaced by the necessary public detox facilities. Urban renewal and the destruction of skid rows dispersed those without a home throughout urban areas where their needed services, including housing and jobs, were very slow, if ever, to materialize. The Reagan administration oversaw significant cutbacks in funding for housing and other reductions in benefits for the very poor among us. And many of these cutbacks continue today. More recently, welfare reform, one of the significant one of the signature accomplishments of the Clinton presidency has reduced benefits for many poor families, forcing them either into homelessness or at the very least into utilizing services intended for the homeless. Finally, the recent Great Recession devastated many families, forcing them into foreclosure and then into battles for rental units, into emergency shelters and into transitional housing or onto the streets. Can you elaborate on what you're alluding to in this passage? Well, um, there's a lot there. Uh, and again, I would very quickly highlight that um, you know, the closing of state mental hospitals uh, and the absence of adequate replacements created uh, a major deinstitutionalization of the mentally ill. Uh, the um, closing of public drunk tanks uh, and the failure to provide the kind of, of uh, detox uh, and treatment facilities uh, really uh, produced major issues for uh, folks experiencing uh, substance abuse. For example, um, between, uh, let me see if I can get this right, between 1978 and 1984, uh, with the arrival of places like the Betty Ford Clinic, there was an increase of privately supported uh, facilities for alcohol treatment, uh, 297% uh, increase. And during that same period, there was a 17% decrease in publicly supported treatment facilities. So... All the money was going into private, uh, costly treatment facilities, and public treatment facilities were being um, decimated. Uh, urban renewal, again, um, what it did was to close down skid row areas and push uh, people uh, out into uh, areas throughout urban areas. So that became more visible. Um, there are a number of policies which on the surface seemed like good, important policies, but which had very significant unintended consequences. Um, in 1974, President Nixon shifted from uh, public housing to um what are now what used to be called Section Eight housing, uh, which were vouchers, uh, and which then became the Housing Choice Voucher Program. Uh, Reagan 
pulled back on um, appropriations for housing. Uh, you mentioned, uh, we mentioned, uh, Clint, um, um, that uh, 1996 uh, <coughs> Clinton uh, change in welfare. Um, one of the things that is striking right now is that of all of the people who are eligible for housing subsidies, all the low income and uh, unhoused people who are eligible for uh, housing subsidies, only 25% even vouchers. Of all of the people who are eligible for uh, temporary assistance for needy families or what uh, has become of welfare. Again, only 25% are receiving assistance. The, uh, the same is true of the Supplemental Nutrition Program uh, or food stamps. Most of the people who are theoretically eligible based on income are not receiving those because there simply isn't enough money. Um, that is uh, really significant in terms of federal policy, federal appropriations. Um, and if, if you look, for example, at uh, COVID and what it has done in the US, um, there was, during, uh, as part of the um, Biden's plan to address uh, COVID and homelessness, uh, he created uh, an eviction moratorium, uh, which was terribly important because it uh, eliminated the possibility that people who were uh, affected by uh, COVID and who were low income wouldn't be evicted. But then uh, the moratorium, as COVID uh, sort of disappeared, the moratorium was evic uh, was uh, lifted, and there's been a huge spike in evictions. So federal policy has very very important consequences, and uh, although there are some uh, very important advances and positive uh, advance. And I, uh, I mentioned the, the work of uh, Obama and uh, Sean Donovan uh, in support of uh, eliminating uh, veteran homelessness. Uh, very important stuff and very successful. Uh, but there are lots of policies that uh, have worked uh, to the disadvantage of uh, people experiencing homelessness. How does your research shed new lights on debates surrounding raising the minimum wage? Uh, let me give you a couple of statistics. Um, the average wage earner uh, in the U.S., the average wage earner, earns about $17 an hour. Uh, the An organization called the National Low-Income Housing Coalition every year produces a report that uh, identifies what it calls the housing wage. The housing wage is uh, what it would take 
as an hourly wage to afford a, an average two-bedroom housing unit. The housing wage uh, in across the country is about $25 an hour. There is no state in the country where somebody working 40 hours a week at minimum wage in that state uh, could afford a the housing wage, i.e., uh, could uh, not the housing, but could afford uh, a two-bedroom housing unit. Um, there are only thirty some counties uh, out of three thousand. So one percent of the counties in the U.S. Uh, would the minimum wage produce enough money to afford a one-bedroom housing unit? Um, and this is all based on the, the concept that uh, uh, is very much part of our understanding, and that is that uh, for uh, most people, uh, they should not have to spend more than 30% of their income on housing. So th that's the base. Uh, and when I cited the other statistics, uh, the housing wage is what you have to earn on an hourly basis uh, in order to afford a two-bedroom housing unit without having to spend more than 30% of your income on housing. Um, those kinds of statistics are absolutely frightening. Uh, in fact, in Denver, for example, um, the minimum wage has just gone up or it will go up on uh, January 1st to uh, $18, uh, $18.75, I think. The housing wage in Denver is over $31 an hour. So even with a significant minimum wage, people who are working at the minimum wage are still $13 or $14 an hour short of being able to afford an average two-bedroom housing unit. Um, what does that say about our minimum wage? It hasn't changed in over 20 years. Uh, it's still $7.25 an hour. Now, uh, many, many states have uh, increased their minimum wage uh, above that, but there's still a number of states who um, <clears throat> uh, have maintained the $7.25 an hour. Uh, people, and there are, as I mentioned earlier, there are 45 to 50% of people experiencing homelessness are working, but still can't afford housing. So we have got to increase wages and clearly an increase in the minimum wage is the way to do that. There's another quotation I'd like to ask you about. It's on page 163. You write as follows. Another way to think about this is the possibility of reversing the regressive elements of existing housing subsidies. Instead of the mortgage interest deduction that benefits wealthy homeowners, perhaps we should create tax benefits for housing renters. 
especially low-income renters. There currently exists the Earned Income Tax Credit, but this focuses on income. Suppose instead we provide a tax credit to low-income renters whose overall revenue stream fell below some percentage of the poverty level. Admittedly, the American dream includes owning your own home, and home ownership is the most frequent way in which families develop assets through increasing equity. However, this whole system favors those who can afford to buy a home. Shouldn't we be thinking about ways to provide increased subsidies for those who can afford to rent their homes? In light of the recent tax code changes, it is imperative that there be a substantial overhaul of the entire tax code. Despite minimal benefits for lower middle and middle class taxpayers, the vast majority of the benefits accrue to the wealthy. This must be corrected. Can you say more about this? Uh, thank you for pushing this button, Ari. Uh, I feel pretty strongly about this. Um, for uh, taxpayers who uh, file, and this is in the US, uh, obviously, but for taxpayers, uh, only about, and I want to say 20 to 25%, but it may be even less than that, uh, a relatively small portion of taxpayers itemize their deductions. And it's only in itemized deductions do you get uh, a benefit from uh, the mortgage interest deduction. And people who itemize their deductions have enough income and enough uh, items that they can deduct so that uh, they can go ahead and itemize their deductions, which means that people who are getting uh, the mortgage interest deduction really are the uh, middle and upper middle and wealthy income earners uh, in this country. Um, the Federal Reserve did a study uh, three or four years ago, and they looked at uh, housing subsidies. Um, and they calculated that uh, the federal government provides uh, various kinds of subsidies that affect housing in the amount of something close to $250 billion a year. Of that, 80% went to people, uh, upper income people, through the mortgage interest deduction, deductions for uh, various kinds of uh, real estate uh, and other kinds of uh, tax deductions. 20% of those housing subsidies went to low-income people. Um, in other words, people who need it the most get the least. People who need it the least get the most. There is something fundamentally wrong with that. Um, and the mortgage interest deduction is one of the most regressive tax instruments going. 
uh, I would favor the total elimination of the mortgage interest deduction. I don't think people uh, who own their own homes and are in a position to itemize the interest they pay on their mortgages, I don't think they need that assistance. Uh, I, for one, don't need it. Um, people at the lower end need all the help they can get. And so uh, it seems to me that um, we really need to rethink uh, our federal policy uh, about um, subsidy, about uh, the tax code. Um, I'm going to say something that uh, I probably shouldn't say, but uh, I will say it. Uh, I would love to see uh, Medicare and Social Security be means tested, which means that there would be um, <clears throat> not just a blanket, but uh, the amount of money uh, that <clears throat> you get charged uh, for Social Security uh, and uh, Medicare would depend on um, how much money you make rather than sort of the blanket system we have now. Uh, now, that's obviously not going to happen. Uh, it's clearly not a very popular position, but it seems to me that uh, we have got to do a better job of providing uh, appropriate kinds of resources for people at the bottom of our uh, economic ladder. Can you say more about the role of friends and friendships in helping the homeless? What are the difficulties faced in nurturing, maintaining, and cultivating friendship relationships among homeless people between themselves and also between homeless and non-homeless people? Um, I have written an article recently on a term we use in our new book called uh, relational poverty. And let me take a moment to explain what I mean by relational poverty. Uh, <clears throat> and in my paper, I suggest that there are really three different pieces of this. For people experiencing homelessness, um, many of them don't have relationships with other people. Uh, and if they do have relationships, those relationships are not uh, strong enough to provide any real support, financial support uh, or uh, other kinds of support. Um, so that's a form of relational poverty. I would argue that many of us in our attitudes about people experiencing homelessness have very poor relationships with those who are unhoused. So that's another kind of relational poverty, poor relationships with people experiencing homelessness. And one of the um, focuses of that is the not in my backyard syndrome, nimbyism, where 
uh, in neighborhoods, uh, there is the possibility of creating um, some kind of housing situation for people experiencing homelessness. But uh, neighborhood residents get up in arms and prohibit uh, the actual siting of those facilities. Again, I think that's an indication of relational poverty, i.e. poor relationships between the housed and the unhoused. Um, as I said earlier, one of the most important things for those of us who are fortunate enough to be in housing is to form relationships with those who are not in housing, not um, privileged and uh, uh, economically uh, secure enough to have housing. And so the importance of those relationships is absolutely fundamental. Uh, and we have to eliminate the relational poverty that I've just mentioned. Uh, I think I, I talked about um, Miracle Friends out in uh, California. My uh, co-author on our new book, uh, Kevin Adler, created something called uh, Miracle Messages. And he went out, he and his colleagues went out and did uh, <clears throat> videos uh, of people who were uh, experiencing homelessness on the streets of San Francisco uh, with the, their permission. Uh, and then said, would you like to uh, share this video uh, with people that you're um, estranged from? And over the course of five or six years, they've reconnected some uh, seven or 800 people with families uh, and friends uh, because they have a series of, of uh, what uh, Kevin calls digital detectives who track down uh, families uh, of these folks uh, and then they share the videos uh, and so on. I also mentioned uh, the Miracle Friends and the buddy, the phone buddy system. Um, both of those are in the business of creating relationships between people who are experiencing homelessness and others who are uh, more fortunate. Um, and it seems to me that that's absolutely critical. Um, and you asked earlier about the difference between a house and a home. In a home, people have those kinds of relationships. Uh, which is why they're so important. Can you share with us some of the reliable data on the extent of homelessness? Um, there are various sources of data about the extent of homelessness. Uh, the most well-known is uh, the annual point-in-time survey. Uh, and again, this is all uh, in the U.S., um, the point-in-time survey is done in late January every year, um, and it's, it's an attempt to, during that one point in time, 
to do as close to a universal census of all people experiencing homelessness. Um, you can imagine that um, in the course of uh, a night or uh, a couple of days, it's very difficult to identify all uh, of the people experiencing homelessness. Uh, but uh, the most recent point in time results suggest uh, about 585,000 uh, people experiencing homelessness in the US. Um, one of the things that um, is important about that is the actual definition of homelessness. Uh, there are two major definitions and uh, they are significantly different. For HUD, the uh, U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, um, the definition of homelessness does not include people who are doubled up with family, with friends, with neighbors. Um, and so there is a significant portion of people uh, who uh, are not included uh, in that definition. Still, uh, the point in time, most recent point in time, found about 585,000. The U.S. Department of Education, however, includes um, in its definition um, students and families who are doubled up. And uh, the most recent data for uh, the U.S. Department of Education suggests that there's something on the order of um, 1 to 1.1 million students uh, who are uh, experiencing homelessness, most of whom are not counted at all in the uh, HUD point-in-time survey because they're doubled up. Something like 75% of all the students uh, who are uh, counted by um, U.S. Department of Education um, are doubled up. And we should point out that the U.S. Department of Education, their data comes from school districts. And um, that's over the course of an academic year as opposed to a single point in time. Um, the other thing, uh, the other part of the uh, data equation is something called the Homeless Management Information System. And increasingly, as it's uh, been perfected, it includes everybody experiencing homelessness who has any contact at all with uh, any uh, formal service agency. And even uh, agencies that provide outreach workers, if they go out and have any contact with someone, uh, then that is supposed to be entered into the Homeless Management Information System, HMIS. In Denver, for example, last year, um, the point in time 
found about 6,000 people experiencing homelessness in the seven county uh, suburb, uh, city and suburbs of Denver. The HMIS system, which is anybody who has had contact, who is experiencing homelessness and has had contact with a service agency over the course of the year, found about 31,000, which is oh, oh, over five times as many. Now, again, it's point in time versus a full year. And trying to put all of this together is very tricky. But we're guessing, uh, and we do this in our new book, we're guessing that somewhere between over the course of a full year, there's somewhere between 5 million and 6 million people experiencing homelessness uh, in the US. The other piece of this is the difference between sheltered and unsheltered. People in shelters are literally people in, in uh, various homeless shelters, in uh, transitional housing, and so on and so forth. Um, and the numbers of people who are unsheltered, i.e. living on the streets, is growing substantially. Uh, and for example, uh, I think I saw something to the effect that there's a 25 to 30% increase in the unsheltered over the course of the last couple of years. So uh, those numbers are increasing substantially. There's another quotation I'd like to ask you about from page 184. You write as follows. While many of us cannot dedicate our lives to this issue, there are ways each of us can make an impact. An important first step is to start using person-first language. There is increasing recognition of the value in referring to some people as individuals with disabilities or individuals with substance abuse disorders. This person-first language should be applied in the realm of homelessness. We should shift the language to a person experiencing homelessness or someone with lived experience versus continuing to use the outdated and somewhat derogatory term homeless person. By changing the language in this way, we are saying that homelessness is a situation or a condition rather than a personal attribute or personal flaw. This simple shift in language helps to break down stereotypes and change the perception of this issue, particularly if one is an individual with lived experience. Person-first language is a stepping stone in building public will. However, it is not the ultimate solution. Simply calling this issue by another name does not make it go away. There are other possible ways to have an impact. Be part of a network that supports individuals living without a home or those at risk of losing their home. Let your legislators know you care about this issue and the necessary reforms in areas such as access to affordable housing, child welfare, criminal justice, eviction prevention, health care, and others established by this book's authors, thus beginning a movement to change some of the systemic causes of homelessness. If you have time, 
volunteer somewhere locally. If you don't, do not have the time to volunteer, but money is your gift, find a local organization and support it. This country needs more organizations to impact those without homes by providing networks of support and building communities. Be part of their support. Finally, get to know someone who is currently experiencing homelessness or has done so in the past. By engaging with individuals on a direct and personal basis, you'll be transformed and come away with a totally different perception of what homelessness is. Can you say more about this passage for us? Can you elaborate on it? Um, yeah, it, it, it seems to me, and I, I uh, <clears throat> go back to something I said earlier, um, one of the most, well, let me, let me start uh, differently. Uh, I am convinced that ultimately, ultimately, the only way we are going to truly and effectively address homelessness is by um, providing the kinds of resources that are necessary. Uh, and that is increases in housing, uh, having a uh, less expensive uh, medical care system, uh, changing uh, the way our criminal justice system operates, uh, providing more uh, public benefits, uh, and so on. And the only way all of that's going to happen is if we can create a campaign of interested persons to push for those kinds of changes. Um, how do we create that kind of campaign? Uh, it really has to do with, um, A, many people changing their attitude and uh, eliminating the kinds of negative stereotypes we have about those experiencing homelessness. How do we do that? One is, uh, and this is something that's in the passage you just read, get to know somebody experiencing homelessness uh, or somebody who, excuse me, uh, has experienced homelessness in the past. That's absolutely critical. Um, and it really becomes transformative. Um, I know it doesn't sound sexy, but uh, person-first language really is important. Um, we wouldn't like to be called the housed, uh, but that's what we're doing when we say somebody is homeless. Um, it's somebody who is experiencing homelessness. Um, <clears throat> I think becoming more acquainted with the issue, uh, becoming more sophisticated about some of the uh, challenges, uh, interacting with locally elected officials, uh, sending um, emails, uh, letters to uh, federal, state, and local officials about uh, important changes, um, <clears throat> volunteering. Uh, that's very important. But again, try not to maintain the kind of power relationship that is so often uh, part of the experience. Um, it's up to all of us to 
become more engaged uh, and more positive. Uh, if you think about Mothers Against Drunk Driving, if you think about uh, the Just Say No campaign in, this, in the U.S., uh, if you think about marriage equality, uh, those are long-term campaigns that were ultimately successful. And we've got to create that kind of campaign to provide the kinds of resources that are necessary to really address homelessness in a significant and important way. Can you comment on the phenomenon of police maltreatment and mistreatment of homeless persons? How widespread and frequent is this? Um, this gets back to um, the criminalization of homelessness, uh, particularly on the streets and encampments. But the other piece of this is uh, the criminal justice system. Um, a significant minority of people in the criminal justice system uh, are people of color. Uh, and uh, uh, African-Americans and others. And if you think about uh, the very, very uh, public events over the last two, three, four years of uh, police brutality uh, against people of color, that is the same kind of thing that happens with um, people experiencing homelessness. One of the uh, significant aspects of the demographics of homelessness is that uh, something close to 40% of all people experiencing homelessness are African-Americans. Uh, in contrast to their percentages in uh, the general public, um, which are somewhere 10 to 12%. So there are three to four times as many people experiencing, uh, uh, African-Americans experiencing homelessness uh, than there are uh, in the general public. Um, and that's because they're very, many of them are very poor. And um, police tend to be negative about people of color. Uh, the, the same, it's not quite as high, but the same is true of, of uh, <clears throat> Hispanics. The same is true of uh, Native Americans. Um, and all of these folks, people of color, uh, are treated very badly. Uh, I don't have specific data about numbers of instances and so on and so forth, but uh, I do know that um, a significant proportion of people in the criminal justice system um, entered there out of homelessness and they often leave the criminal justice system uh, and immediately return into homelessness uh, because we don't have adequate provision uh, to provide housing for them. What does your research teach us about 
intersectionality. What are the intersectional causes and repercussions of homelessness? This is something that uh, many of us fail to take into consideration. If you think about homelessness, it's an issue of housing. It's an issue of health care. It's an issue of transportation. It's an issue of child care. Uh, it's an issue of public benefits. It's an issue of employment um, <clears throat> and other kinds of systems. And in order to really be effective in addressing homelessness, you we really have to think of this as a total system rather than a series of silos. And unfortunately, many uh, who are addressing homelessness really think of it just as housing. Uh, but all of these other factors are equally important. Uh, and we've got to think of it uh, in uh, those kinds of intersectional terms. You write as follows on page eight. What then distinguishes between those who are housed and those who are not? The simple answer is resources, financial housing, financial housing, re employment, nutritional, healthcare, child care, educational, and transportation. That is the resources needed to maintain some level of self-sufficiency and stability. These resources also include human resources, social capital, people who care, networks of support, and a community on which to re rely. Can you say more about this? Well, that's really what I was just talking about. Um, there are all kinds of factors uh, that are intermingled uh, and <clears throat> part of the issue of homelessness. Um, and, uh, you know, as you read through that, uh, Aria, I was reminded about uh, education. I mean, one of the things that is, is uh, characteristic, uh, particularly of youth, who are experiencing homelessness is a vast, uh, a significant number of them come out of the foster care system. And so uh, our foster care system in the US uh, is woefully inadequate uh, and does a very bad job in terms of um, A, providing education and B, providing a sound basis on which uh, people leave the system and can uh, function on their own. Um, so all of these factors are critically important uh, for those uh, experiencing homelessness. And um, to neglect any of them is to uh, have a negative effect on our ability to address the overall issue. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? Yeah. Um, I'm Right now, I'm uh, involved in uh, two major activities. One is uh, completing the uh, publishing of a new book, and I will mention uh, the title. It's When We Walk By, colon, Forgotten Humanity, Broken Systems, 
and the role we can each play in ending homelessness in America. Uh, and this is due to uh, hit the streets uh, on November 7th of this year. Uh, and if anybody is interested, uh, let me know and I can uh, provide you with uh, information about the book. Uh, this book has been almost four years in production. Uh, and uh, it's me and my co-author, Kevin Adler, and two young women who uh, started working with us as interns uh, and who have stayed with us uh, throughout the four years and are now listed as co-authors of the book. Um, so getting this ready, getting this together, um, getting it ready for publication uh, has been uh, a significant uh, part of my activity. Uh, the other project uh, is based on something I said a few minutes ago, and that is the need to um, counteract the not-in-my-backyard syndrome. And I gathered uh, a group of uh, very good thinkers to try and dig below the surface of why so many people um, feel strongly about not in my backyard. And what we're trying to do is to dig below the surface and figure out where do the negative attitudes come from? Uh, why do so many people feel so negatively about providing uh, assistance to experiencing well, it's, you know, there are a lot of people who think it's important to do something about uh, homelessness, but for heaven's sakes, don't put it in my backyard. And so we're trying to understand why people feel that they don't want folks experiencing homelessness in their backyard and really get beneath the surface of some of that thinking. Uh, and my hunch is that a lot of this has to do with underlying values, uh, underlying attitudes, which uh, typically um, kids growing up uh, learn from various sources, like parents, schools, neighborhoods, churches, etc. cetera. Uh, and so, how do we go about intervening with parents, uh, with schools uh, and churches and so on to um, overcome some of the negativity that seems to develop around uh, homelessness? Um, and so we're doing some field research about that and we're trying to develop strategies to uh, begin to counteract the negativity. So those are the two major things that uh, I've been working on. I'm uh, involved in several organizations here in the local area that uh, are part of uh, the effort to address homelessness. And all of that tends to um, uh, make sure that I'm not on the streets of Denver at night. And people in Denver are very grateful that I'm not uh, invading their streets at night. Sounds stellar. Thank you.
As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I am your host, Ari Barbalat, signing off. Today, I have been in dialogue with Dr. Donald Burns. He is the founder of the Burns Institute for Poverty Research at the Colorado Center on Law and Policy in Denver, Colorado. Today, he and I have been in dialogue regarding the book he has co-published with Jamie Reif, Journeys Out of Homelessness, Voices of Lived Experience, published in Boulder, Colorado by Lynn Reiner Publishers, 2020. Thank you wholeheartedly.